Welcome to Comedy vs. the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm a gentleman. And I'm the machine. Oh, that makes me the officer. Uh, this is great. Great. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we get a, a double feature, Dave, because we're watching an officer and a gentleman. It did feel like two movies. I joined the Navy. You joined the Navy. <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> you man. Fly the Lord Jesus! What Jets. Wanna fly jets? Look at yourself. Officers don't have tattoos. What's your name, boy? Mayo. Zach Mayo, sir. Go, go, come on, baby. You got a girl, Mayo, the walk? No. I ain't looking for one either. What are you looking for? You know, a big thank you to our patrons over on Patreon. Their contributions help us continue the show since, you know, the machine doesn't help us to pay for these movies. Plus, each month we do a bonus episode over there for your hungry little ear holes. Disgusting. What you get this. Wow. You, <laughs> how long were you, you waiting to say the, that? You get the original Japanese film, Silence, is what we're going to finish off with our bonus episode this year. Finishing off talking about movies from 1971. We'll get to see what all the inspiration, perhaps, of this Scorsese film was. Thank Clement. It's a listener, Clement, who does message us quite a bit on the Instagram. Keeping us on the straight and narrow. Before we get to talking about this week's film, we should probably advance the plot because, as we all know, people who tune into this podcast are obsessed Salivating. with the deep and rich fiction. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's saliva, Dave. Salivating. Um, but, you know, because of last week, you pushed some random buttons inside of this time machine we found ourselves in. That's and what now I we're. Do unstuck in time once again so good job we've been barreling through an empty void otherwise known as my life wow i it's the end of the year kyle it's just doldrums mm -hmm. just the doldrums yeah, right <laughs> where do you think we're going to end up oh i don't know hopefully at home but what is home isn't isn't this podcast kind of like a home it's becoming i feel like i'm spending more time here than anywhere else that's mm. true no it'd be nice to appear in 2023, in 2023, hmm. yeah, uh, I suspect that's not going to happen, but that's, that's my dream, Kyle. Do you know that we started this podcast before COVID <laughs> happened? Doesn't it feel like that was 75 years ago? It's just a part of our life now. Looks like Apocalypse is back on the menu, boys. Dave, another thing we have to do before we get into talking about this week's film is last week we talked about Fanny and Alexander, yep. and this is a great... This is the thing that happens with me is that I state, hey, we have to do this thing. And then I completely forget about it and never return to it. And because your brain is like a sieve, you're not going to retain any information. Uh -huh. We forgot to talk about, we have a few different lists over on Letterboxd. So, of course, we always go through each year and are rating each film in the year that it was released. But Fanny and Alexander also shows up on the Letterboxd top 250. So we've been slowly picking away at that list as well. So every time we come to a film okay. that's on that list, we... That ever-changing list. Yes, I know. So basically our thing is that if it's on the list at the time we're talking about it, then put it we'll, we'll put it onto our list. Sheet. Okay. Fanny and Alexander, you were a little bit mid on it. Mm -hmm. I was very high on it. Mm -hmm. So it actually averaged to a 3.75, which means it didn't tie with anything. So I'm just here to let everyone know 
that is going to enter the list, the top 250, at the number 11 position, right above Tokyo Story and right underneath Magnolia. It's funny. So that's where it's going to go. I feel like Mm -hmm. that's the right place. We're going to be talking about an officer and a gentleman here this week. So first and foremost, I think there's these two performers that we should have a quick discussion about. Number one. David Crusoe. Yes. Is, is, yes, David Crusoe. <laughs> I saw that floppy red hair. I'm like, that's David Crusoe, isn't it? He was thicker it? in this than in Rambo, wasn't he? Than in First yeah, Blood. I know, yeah. right? I took me yeah. a little, it took me about like half of his first scene. I was like, I know that's him, but is that David Caruso? It's <laughs> like it? Bobby Caruso. His twin yeah. brother. Uh, no, let's talk about Richard Gere, mm-hmm. first of all. We have discussed briefly, I shouldn't say briefly, we have come across a Richard Gere film. We talked about Runaway Bride in our first season, talking about 1999. But I would say that this is very different era Richard Gere, mm-hmm. right? 1999, he's in his Silver Fox era, we'll, we'll say. This is very young Richard Gere, kind of sexy, sex appeal Richard Gere. So, I don't know, anything that you want to bring up about... Uh, the gear man <laughs> jesus christ <laughs> uh not in the, not in that context no i think my first taste of the gearhead gear fa- whatever you just call them was probably pretty mm-hmm. woman so 80s i don't know can you, I, I mean i've seen this movie before can you name any other 80s richard the gear? other big one yeah because this is still kind of early in his career yeah but this is definitely the thing that catapulted his career, this movie in particular. It's weird because I just watched this movie uh, the other day, which is American Gigolo. Right. So American right. Gigolo comes out in 80. This comes out in 82. And I think that one-two punch over the, like a couple year mark was like, ooh, this is a guy this to is a guy. Yeah. look at. Until he got political. And then mid 80s i mean it's a bunch of stuff but i don't think i've seen any of them so i, I don't know my my richard gear I mean, is there's there's primal fear yeah but that's Dave. 90s richard gear for me is 90s and then his resurgence in the 2010s what he came back in a couple of indie thrillers but i haven't seen what he's been doing lately i actually don't even know if he is in anything that's the my, terrible thing to yeah, say yeah my wikipedia scan is basically he's a political advocate for tibet right and for the democratic party of america mm-hmm as you know, or may can guess, I'm not a huge Pretty Woman fan. Oh God, what is what are you a fan of? It's like you don't like death. joy yeah, in your death, life. Death and uh, morbidity, obviously. I guess I hate laughing. Just gives me gives me ache. Gives me these creases. Uh. I'm just not a fan <laughs> of. I think I mentioned it in our Pretty Woman episode. Oh, what we have a Pretty Woman episode? Oh, sorry, sorry. I think I mentioned it in our Runaway Bride episode. I was struggling to be like, I don't really get. Richard Gere in in many ways because like you as I was coming of an age and watching films and sure there was again Primal Fear in mid 90s there was um Pretty Woman get in the 99 yeah. like rom-com era yeah. sort of a resurgence in in Chicago in the early 2000s oh, yeah, that's right. and then he did Chicago yeah and then I don't know not a whole lot so I, I guess I never was like I never got what his appeal was I will say again having seen this one two punch of early 80s American Gigolo and then this movie. I kind of get it. I do get it. There is a, a there uh-huh. is a um a magnetism sexual, in his early years. Sexual, mag- sexual yeah. yeah. He's like a, a sexual magnetism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I think that I think there's he has more acting chops than maybe I was giving him credit for. Whether that's a huge range he has, that's another conversation. But I think there's something that he's bringing to a role. He's got very, yeah, yeah, particular Richard Gere. So I think I, I, I'm finally understanding why people were so enthusiastic about him and why I guess he was allowed to have a second phase of his career, the resurgence part, because people had that built in 
love of what he had done in the 80s and early 90s. This is a long way of me saying I think I'm coming around to understanding why Richard Gere is a thing. Mm. <laughs> and I may be even becoming a fan of Richard Gere and I'm trying to branch out and see some more of his performances. Mm. I guess we'll talk about this movie. I haven't seen American Gigolo. It's good. I do like that movie. It, yeah, apparently it's good. I'm trying to think of someone to compare him to, but he, yeah, it's one of those guys, like we talk about a lot who become Hollywood stars. Is it because they can act or is it just that charisma or unique Yeah, I th everyone is, is or something? a little bit unique. I, yeah. Having done some research on this movie already, I will say this. He does come across is a pretty serious dude, mm. meaning that he doesn't really make fun of himself all that much. Like he's very ultra serious about the work and all that kind of stuff. And definitely the making of this film, he comes across as a bit of a jerk. <laughs> Unlike, let's just, I'm just going to say, I'm trying to think of a, now I'm trying to think of a good example, but oh, Chris Evans, I would say is a good example of this, which is like, I think he understands, Hey, I am just a nice guy. I'm a nice guy. I have limited range and I'm going to comment on that fact in interviews. Like I don't take myself all that seriously. Whereas Richard Gere was always like, I'm taking myself seriously yes. and my work is very serious. Yeah. I think that translates to in him and his activism. I mean, I was reading as mm -hmm. well, like, you know, he's connected to Zen Buddhist movement, like late 60s yeah. when zen buddhism came into america around that time it was very cultish the uh, number of high profile hollywood people that really made that into a thing in american culture they get really into it so yeah he, he definitely strikes me as somebody who thinks highly of his purpose in life if not himself i don't know if he's arrogant per se right i that do I know, know. Uh, never met him what's the woman's name in this she was deborah winger deborah winger almost famous she also did not enjoy working with him, but she's got Correct. her own reputation of not being easy to work with either from what I read. So, well, that's a good segue here then. Do you have any history with Deborah? Winner? I don't think so. I, there's a lot of Deborah. So when I saw the name on the marquee, I was trying to think of which Deborah in the eighties this could be. <laughs> Terms of endearment is the big one yes. for, for people out there. Yeah. And then, I mean, when I looked her up, there was a, a hiatus because she just didn't want to act anymore. Do you know mm -hmm. a little bit about her story? I'll just throw this in. We don't have to have a separate section necessarily, but she was paralyzed in a car accident. Oh, that I did not know. Yeah, in high school or early college. And during the recoveries when she decided if she got out of it, she's going to dedicate her life to being an actress. So that's just kind of an anecdotal what a characterization of the type of person she is. And that's why I think when she got disillusioned with Hollywood, she's just like, fuck it, I'm not doing this anymore. She like taught at Harvard. <laughs> it's right, fascinating. Right. And then she came back. Unfortunately, in an Ashton Kutcher garbage TV show on Netflix, but whatever. Yeah, like that's the unfortunate part. I mean, outside of terms of endearment, like Irving Cowboy in 1980 is probably going to be the other big one people know from the 80s. Having looked at her list of films, I have this kind of weird take. She worked with a lot of high-profile directors or actors in their least talked about film. Mm. It's a weird series of, of things that she goes through because she's in like this uh, Bertolucci movie. Have you ever heard of The Sheltering Sky? No. Like no one's heard of this movie. She's in Richard Attenborough's like almost follow-up to Gandhi called Shadowlands. No one's heard about this movie. <laughs> she's in... Uh, this Bob Rafelson movie called Black Widow. No one's heard about that movie. She's in the Steve Martin film Leap of Faith. No one has talked about that movie since it's come out. She's been in the Billy Crystal starring and directed film Forget Paris. <laughs> no one's talked about that movie since it's come out. It's so weird. Like this huge series of films where you would think on paper, these are people, these are big names at the top of their game. She's picking good roles and all of those movies no one oh, talks right. about. Yeah. Like it's so weird. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, I don't. I don't know much about her. Mm -hmm. 
I actually know her more for her later career. She was on Broadway? Indie films. Oh, indie films. Rachel Getting Married and Kajillionaire that came out a couple years ago, which she's very good in. Mm. But like, it's like, those are the roles I know her from, not like in her quote unquote heyday. Nobody should forget about Forget Paris. How about this movie, Dave? What is your backstory on this movie? I don't know why I've seen it. Or history of this movie. Because it's not obviously something that I would just put on. Are you telling me that at five years old, you weren't like, I'm dying to see an officer and a gentleman please mom and dad i need to go and see an officer and a gentleman and this is not a and this is not a movie helen would want to watch uh, i know this because i asked her if she really? wanted to I watch she it like romance films yeah she likes uh, fun romance films oh, okay, and okay. definitely not romance well no that's not true you guys were vibing on dirty dancing and pretty woman Ugh. i, I want to say this has actually a lot of similar vibes to dirty dancing weirdly in yes some, in some cases yeah Maybe it was like when I was working, I used to work at a video store. Maybe it was, you know, before I met Helen. I don't know why I would have watched it. Anyways, I've seen it. I'm going to say that forecasting the future, I don't remember much of it except for the military thing. So I must have watched it young mm. enough that the romance, like not subplot, but main romance plot was completely yeah. lost on me. And I just remember all of the military training things. So I must have been interesting just in full boy mode when i watched this film right right okay interesting because the only thing i know about this movie is that it's a romance i was under the impression that this was actually a romantic comedy oh, to be honest with yikes. you i honestly thought this was a romantic comedy oh no so imagine my surprise <laughs> when, when you didn't five laugh minutes once. in, I'm like, this is not a comedy. <laughs> when <laughs> like this I'm boy watching. shows up in the Philippines is being propositioned mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. sex. Yeah. But beyond that, that, that's a me thing. That's not a problem of the movie in itself. The only thing I know about this movie is the final scene that has been parodied, referenced, oh, talked you're Simpsons about, guy. and discussed. Yeah, yeah. Well, not even that, but I mean, like, the, the song that was written for this movie, yes. Up Where We Belong, is an iconic song. Yes. The music video has this in the music video. Oh, like, music everything video. about this. Like, this is what it's referenced. I hate it. It's not just the Simpsons, movie. but yeah. it's got its little fingers throughout culture, at least for a little while. Yeah, yeah. I would say at least up to a decade 90s. after this movie came out, people are still referencing sure. it. Sure. I mean, it has a name clout. If you say officer and gentleman, yeah. people who have no idea what it is will have recognized that that was a movie at some time sure. in history. So, I, I think... All right. Well, I am excited to jump into this and actually finally watch this for the first time. So let's do this. Let's take a break. We'll go thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking about an officer and a gentleman. How long do you think you would have lasted going to military school? Like, would you DOR yourself or? I wouldn't have even been able to line up properly on the field. And the moment uh, Louis Gossett Jr. showed up, I'd probably just pee my pants and go home. I will say that uh, moving to Alberta, it is cool and shocking how prominent the military or whatever like service uh, is here versus in toronto nobody talks mm. about it in toronto unless you literally like maybe this character don't really have anywhere else to go and the idea of putting in is it four years and getting uh, a stipend back so that you can jumpstart your your life sure. but outside of that there's a reason why people go and if it's in peacetime like it's great <laughs> in toronto we don't get remembrance day off you show up you don't no at Weird. 11 o'clock, they're like, shut the fuck up for a minute and get back to work. Even at school. You go to school. At 11, you stand up. You, I don't know if you recite or listen to Poppy's Field, that poem. And then you get back to get back to school. I think that's because Alberta produces quite a lot of uh, soldiers. 
Ontario doesn't seem to, even though there's, you know, the military's there. And My grandfather was in the military, hmm. but uh, fought in World War II, was a gunner. That's crazy. I think I've said this before, just like a lot of people from that generation, if you asked them about it, he was like, I don't talk about that. And then we just didn't talk well, about that. <laughs> when we looked, remember, I can understand that. Yeah. I mean, he obviously wasn't like Dirk Borgard necessarily in a concentration yeah. camp. But when you read some of those stories, why would anybody talk about it? <laughs> yeah. PTSD is a really fucking real thing. So. On that fun note, Kyle and Dave vs. Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast We're very Network. good at this. Yeah. Lo locally grown, <laughs> community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. You know, this week, I get to talk to you about Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. You know, in Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski. And we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network. So it's a great fit. Learn more by going to parkpower.ca. Uh, let's talk about insurance. Because Alberta right. Blue Cross Group has got your back. You know, if you're a business owner, your life is probably hectic, to say the least. But Alberta Blue Cross understands that. They can offer you flexible health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. Even better, Kyle, you can let your staff enroll and manage their coverage at any time and on any device. I think that infers they have an app. That makes mm. life easier for them and for you. You've got this when it comes to group coverage for your small business and Alberta Blue Cross has got your back. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. All right, well, we have sat down and watched this movie myself for the first time. This seems to be Dave's second time. So let's come up with a scenario here, Dave. Let's say that we're in Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. Like the uh, musical or? No, no, no. I mean, the actual, the actual state. Uh -huh. This is why we're friends. I actually know that. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it's Oklahoma with an exclamation are, point. Isn't it so, always? So you always have to say Oklahoma. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we're trying to make this decision and a man in white, obviously from a, a, a naval base, mm -hmm. walks up to us. In the Navy. And, and thrusts Please. a copy of the village right. people at us. And also... A, uh, a VHS copy of an officer and a gentleman, mm -hmm. and he's like, tell me what this is about, and drop and give me 20. What are you going to do? And ask 20 what? Can we say a near-do-well? Do people still say that? Mm. Uh, sure. Yeah, a young man, what's the right word? A young man enrolls himself into a military officer's college to find his purpose in life, but may have found love instead along the way. Mm. What were your perceptions of watching perceptions this movie again? Perceptions like that. I... Just thought this movie was. I was right where Kyle. I felt uh, the movie for me felt muddied. I feel like I was also off put. As soon as I turned it on, I forgot how it starts. And it's quite a bit of a shock scene. It starts with an orgy day, yeah, which I was man, not anticipating at all. A couple of Filipino prostitutes. Yeah. And I don't, were they even Filipino? They were in Washington. I think they were white women. Who cares? So we've got Richard Gere walking around an old man with two women and it's just very off-putting because you're like, I don't understand the context of the scene. And then we do the flashbacks 
And I'm like, I don't remember that he grew up in a brothel. And then we cut back right. and him and his like gross bro dad are like talking about a, is it a graduation present that his dad has hired two prostitutes yeah. for the orgy? He's the kind of guy who has sex with prostitutes with his dad. Well, I yes. I'm, so I'm already I think like, he doesn't what like the his fuck dad very much, though. Like he's he's not like enjoying, which it. is even weirder if you think about it. So I, you know, I was a little off, but I mean, was, I'm sorry, I'm not, not to interrupt you too much here, but I mean, I actually think we're going to probably be aligned pretty much for this movie. But just as a starting point. The, the, I think how this movie's trajectory goes, you have to make him start in a pretty low degraded point so that the ending even feels like it's a payoff. So I don't know if him starting off being kind of a gross dude is a no, negative necessarily. I just, no, I found, uh, and I don't know about the filmmaking, I just found it a negative place to start off. Again, because I had the preconceived notion that this was more of a sort of adult coming of age learning mm. about life i had forgotten how gritty the beginning is so already like you said about the rom-com the tone for me is like oh i don't remember it being so yeah so dark i think this movie should have started with a murder uh, as soon as it gets to the military college that's the parts that i remember i remember the drill station. i love louis gossett jr it's a trope i think is this before full metal jacket or after I really want to bring up Full Metal Jacket okay. for a bunch of different reasons. If you had to guess, Dave, when did Full Metal Jacket come out? If you just had to guess. I think after this, if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong. I feel like it was like 84 or... Full Metal Jacket came out in 87. 87. So full so, five. Yeah. yeah. Which always surprised me. Like, I, I do know that to an extent. This is such a Kubrick thing because I find like most of his films don't feel like the year they come out in. Yeah, like, yeah. They, they have this weird feeling of like Cause, always. Because he's stuck up, in the past. Up, out of time. Yeah, yeah. If you told me that uh, Full Metal Jacket is an early 90s film or a late 70s film, I'd be like, yeah, okay, that tracks. It just doesn't feel like a late 80s film mm -hmm. to me. Like, if you say 80s film, there's certain things that pop in my brain yeah, and Full Metal Terminator. Jacket wouldn't even be anywhere on my top 100 list of like 80s films yeah, yeah. anyways that's a that's a total digression but yes this comes a full five years before mm. full metal jacket comes out uh, i don't know if it's trope forming i can't remember other military movies if they have this much focus on the drill sergeant and what it takes to survive training camp but these are the scenes that i remember uh these are the scenes that i remember and then when they introduced the women uh, i had forgotten that the romance was going to be a central part of the film mm. You know, it's written sort of well enough that his dealing with PTSD kind of makes sense. There are some weird, like him suddenly being a ninja and using shitty karate to beat up a guy in the street was very... It was just kind of like, hey, where the fuck did that come from? Richard Gere did train apparently yeah, for yeah. multiple months yeah, just to like do that. Just like Keanu did for The Matrix, but it doesn't make them martial make artists. Yeah. I, know, I, I mean, if, those, if this movie's done currently, either they'll get more training or you can come up with choreography that doesn't look... So silly. Mm. See, at any rate, that that's nitpicking. But I don't know about you. Didn't you find like it felt over long, and I just felt like uh, well, yeah. I mean, I think mushy you, in between. I don't. I, I just couldn't well, get you into it. You kind of mentioned this at the beginning about how it almost feels like two movies, which I do agree with. I think where we're going to split is on which movie you prefer to be watching, mm. because I'm on the end of like all of the Romance. training stuff. Yeah was like, uh, like I, I don't know, I've seen all this stuff before. And I know that it's not necessarily the, the problem of the movie because I think this does set up what a bunch of other movies copy right. for the next like four decades. This does kind of dabble in that a bit of another trope, which is like, 
the guy who's like a huge asshole to you is actually the one who cares about the you father the most. Figure, yeah. Which I don't know if actually ever really happens watch in real life to quite this extent. Uh, but I mean, whatever. I, that's fine. It's a movie. I can, I can suspend my disbelief to a certain extent about that. But I just found that because I have seen all the other movies after this, that anytime we went back to the barracks, I'm like, ugh, okay, another training don't scene. You feel like that that? Why don't you feel like that about romance? Other than the fact that you're starving for romance, Kyle. I mean, every romance is the same movie. Hmm. Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> I guess it's... <sighs> it's the same thing. It's just being retold. I don't know. Uh, just to quickly answer your question, like I wouldn't necessarily want to watch a full barracks only film. If these were two films and we had just uh, to split it and we had made the film 80% romance and kind of like cut down the training, I think it would be successful as well. I'm not going to say that mm-hmm. I would dislike that movie. I, I It's hard in our rewrite mentality. Maybe it has to be written this way because if we're going to follow whatever the Oklahoman guy's name is to his untimely demise, we do need the pressure of the camp to understand just how he's stretched out that far thing. Yeah, I I don't think you can eliminate one of these sides. I just, I feel like there's a bit of an imbalance somewhere along the way. I I have not figured out what, which side of it. Yeah. needs to be have some more time spent on it if you want the ending that people like you need to cut down the drill sergeant stuff i think so too like that that's my part is like i think they saw the talent they had in louis gossett jr i mean there's i think a reason why he wins best supporting actor this year like i understand his innate charisma and talent and what, what's going on here but again i hate to say it but like because arlie ermy five years later is like the best drill sergeant on film. Like he just feels like that. This feels like a bit of a pale imitation to me at the same no, time where it's like recency bias, right? Well, here's the thing. Arlie Ermey was actually hired to be in this movie. And then the director decides, no, we want to go in a different direction. So Arlie Ermey is the one who trains Louis Gossett Jr. to be a drill sergeant, uh, which is why the steers and queers line is in both movies. It's because Arlie Ermey actually said that in his drill sergeant stuff. And both movies decided that they wanted to keep it. So this does feel like a performance that's filtered from Arlie Ermey telling Louis Gossett Jr. what to say, and then Louis Gossett Jr. saying it, instead of it being kind of a a natural performance. But again, that's the value of hindsight and not living in 1982 Mm -hmm. and this being the first time you're seeing this. Mm -hmm. Presumably. We don't know about Army movies in the 60s, 70s, 50s, 40s, 30s. Well, yeah. I mean, mean, I've seen some war movies from from that time period, and I think there has been something similar to this. In fact, if you read the Pauline Kael review of this movie, she mentions that. She's like, I feel like I'm watching a 1950s movie just updated to be in 1980. It follows the same beats, it's the same story structure, it's the same everything. It's just that you're allowed to get away with more stuff in 1982. Yeah, more butts. But it's the same structure. Men and women, which I like. I always crave more butts. I agree, I guess, to a certain extent. Yes, romance films also follow some pretty specific tropes. What can make me look past that is if I think that the natural chemistry between the, oh, the yeah. actors supersedes the tropes that are happening. Deborah Winger and Richard Gere, even if they, they didn't like each oh, other, they were. fucking have chemistry yeah. in this movie. Like, it is off the charts. I'm pretty sure they weren't act... F- <laughs> fucking <laughs> well because <laughs> i know i know you get felt so like that they were in it it's yeah, crazy i know yeah. I, I agree with you but that's also a scene that is so 80s and early 90s yeah. and i know that you are so anti having any sex in any film ever no no but it's something that i kind of miss in modern filmmaking is that 
they're not just allowed to, to be that HBO. sensuous with each yeah, other. Just watch. It's pornographic. I want it actually, in a movie, but... Dave. I don't want to watch a, a ten part limited series to to, <laughs> like every, to see people. <laughs> every part is about their parts. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It's like I don't want the whole movie to be that either. Mm-hmm. But I mean, when sex is such a huge part of people's lives, especially new love and that kind of stuff, it's just weird that you never really see this type of stuff anymore. I'll even go so far as like if you watch the new Top Gun and compare it to the original Top Gun, those two sex scenes could not be more different. Sure. <laughs> like there's just stuff that they do not show anymore. Yeah. That it's, just, it's kind of a weird well, I think, thing yeah, we saw in the, modern films. I saw in 71, I think the audience has changed so much. And so mm-hmm. your marketing side is going to be like, well, if we want uh, 13-year-old boys to watch Top Gun Maverick, uh, we cannot have nippleage. Whereas this film would not be considering uh, pubescent viewership, no, right? No, this is squarely marketed against two adults, right? I'll say like this film, I think the sex scene is earned and held and uh, shot delicately and sort of uh, correctly, but it, it doesn't stand yeah, out. It's, it's not gratuitous. Quite right? sensuous. And uh, even like the beginning where we we notice the tone difference and it's just super gross with, like, what's that guy's name? The actor, you know, and everything's coming out. You're like, uh, it makes sense. Something Loja, something. Yeah. Paul? Frank Loja? Frank? Paul Loja? It works for that scene, right? Because... The, the, the weird thing is because there's enough that I like about this movie, it kept reinvigorating my interest. Every time like I was losing mm-hmm. <laughs> focus, there was something that came in and it, it does this um, remarkable thing. As much as I know, it is completely manipulating me. It's doing all the movie cliches, but there's cer- certain scenes I'm like, God damn it, you got me, mm-hmm. you got me. Like the, the one I'm thinking of is him helping the woman soldier over the top yes. and everything. It's like, yeah, he's finally learned to be team someone player. who thinks about those people. A team player and it's like, he's been so nice to this person to the extent like I almost started tearing up. I thought it was so nice, yeah. it was so good. And then you get to other scenes, it's like, okay, this is gonna be going on a little bit longer than it needs to be. Yeah. But so it kept like coming back and coming back coming back it doesn't do an 80s thing where there's always a scene that's like why is this scene in this movie which is the karate scene yeah. which i still don't really well, it's get supposed to set up <laughs> like their... i know it's like male machismo thing i'm like i'm gonna beat you up and that's gonna prove you a lesson no but... it's supposed to set up their showdown at the end right about yeah uh... true why do they both know karate that's what they want to well, know they they do that stupid thing where in the philippines he's beat up by a ninja which is very random Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that kid studies martial arts. So when that popped up, I was like, that's like martial arts movie. <laughs> yeah, beating yeah. up. And it's so random. And you're like, wow. It's- and he does beat up the other guy halfway through. That's the thing. You, you know what later it is. Like, okay, he knows how to fight, quote unquote. And like movie logic, he knows how to fight. And in military school, you do learn uh, different martial arts and self defense techniques. I mean, you have to, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, uh, people are trying to kill you and it's not for sport. So, yeah. I mean, it's not. A hundred percent out of place, but it is shot in such a cartoony way, that scene, and maybe it's like tropey now. Maybe it was yeah. more original at the time, but... Well, it has to be, because this was literally considered one of the best movies of 1982. Yeah. Like, it was on the top of so many critics' lists, uh, not only for a bunch of Oscars, yeah, a bunch of critics' organizations put it into their top ten, so it was like, it's it was really deal. beloved when it came out, like, and critics really went to bat for this movie, so it's not it's like... It's not a Billy Jack. No, it's not something that only, like, fans yeah. are, like, a big fan of or anything like that. I, um, I, I'm trying to put myself back in that time. I just think it's, it suffers a little bit from the past 40 years where sure. it's not able to, it isn't able to raise itself above what it set out 
itself to do. But because I think ultimately I come down on the same side as you, Dave, which I was a little bit muted in my response where it's like, there's these parts that I love mm-hmm. that are, I think are really well done, really great filmmaking. But there's this other stuff that just feels a little ham-fisted, a little pat, a, a, a little 280s, I guess, yeah. for lack of a better word. But I will say... I understand why it made so much money because that final scene is pretty killer. Like it just the music, the way it's shot together. I love that. I really didn't like it. I, I know that the point of the film primarily his big redemption of being able to, you know, both love himself and love a woman and love his right. people around him. But for me, the Hollywoodness bothers me only because here's a man who's dealing with such brutal PTSD on a personal level. His mother committed suicide. Yeah. abandon him and then his pseudo best friend commits suicide and he has to carry the body off the hook and then all of a sudden a week later after trying to run away from everything he wa- strolls up into this paper factory and sweeps this woman off her feet and then this i i started picking up this thing with um some moralization you know the woman i i really liked deborah winger in this film i thought she was yeah. a very i wish she was given more to do but yeah and there is some good writing for the women here they're not just cast away bikini bods like they have good characters yeah. underneath well them. i like that one of them is allowed to be a little bit manipulative too but it that i don't know it, it's additive to that character but that's why I don't, she's not just evil she's evil she's not, i'm sorry she's not just evil or something like that she has shades to her character so that's the thing like i i think i would have preferred this movie to um found a way to end and again yeah like you said at the beginning like do i hate happiness probably I just feel like that was too much. It was too melodramatic for me. I, I like the fact that we do that. I, the, the camera work to sh- to give us a suspense of whether Richard Gere is going to be in the graduation academy is a little right, cheesy. Right. But seeing him graduate and having made the choice to pursue this new life, I think like if she had been there or something a little bit more uh, succinct for me would have worked a little better. Doing the big uh, over-the-top cheese ball thing where he strolls in and everybody's like oh my god good men exist and all you have to do is be a righteous woman who stands by her morals and you know Mm -hmm. doesn't cheat anybody and you will also be saved by this fucking white knight i just i can't i just can't yeah there is a bit of a conservative moralizing that goes to this movie for sure but it's it's, it's that kind of i don't know earnestness that I, well, I enjoy it. doesn't I happen know. very often in modern movies. That's like, why you like is not uh, Pretty Woman that, dear, Dirty Dancing. It's the same. It is. I mean, through I, think the, I think those movies are better than this movie. That's my bold proclamation. I think both of those movies are better. Some of the earnestness actually really worked for me. I think, honestly, if you change the ending, though, Dave, it does not become iconic. I don't think this movie sure, becomes sure. iconic uh, without that final scene. That's why I'm not a Hollywood millionaire screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Right. But as a viewer, right. you know, it's kind of funny. Like I keep bringing up, like my wife and I have been together for a long time, but. And you wouldn't come to her place of work and sweep her up off her feet and walk her out. No, I just go and pick her up. But I, I just feel like. Uh, <laughs> Honk the horn. <laughs> you know, I just have this sense and I, it's opposite of Helen where I don't like romances because I think that they're too unrealistic for me. I, don't, I think they put away too much of how hard the day-to-day work actually is and it creates this false ideal i know that's a dumb thing to say uh because it's just a story and we need something melodramatic to even stir us right but i don't know i think it depends on what kind of movie you're making i mean you also don't watch a movie like marriage story so uh well it's on my wish list but i I won't have anyone to watch it with because that is a movie that i can't watch but that's a movie that my wife definitely gets into the nitty-gritty of like how hard relationships are to 
continue on. And a great how-to on how to punch holes in walls. I don't want every romantic film to be like that deep in the weeds of like, this is hard, this is hard, this is hard. Sometimes you do need that wish fulfillment of like, you know what? All you need is a good 80s power ballad and a guy in white. And that's all you need. (laughs) And love will conquer all day. Love is going to conquer it. Yeah. Uh, at any rate, I mean, it's not a terrible movie. I watched the whole thing. I didn't scrub it. I didn't uh, turn it off. I can understand why some of these scenes are iconic. There's a reason why I remember every training sequence and things. You know what they could have cut out, I think, to just edit this and tighten up? Probably the uh, scam subplot of the boots and the buckles. I don't think it oh, adds yeah, yeah. that much to... Because we already understand Richard Gere's sort of character. With all the other stuff he does, it's like you're adding another layer on that you don't yeah. really need. And honestly, it really isn't paid off all that well no. either. It's like a it way needs- to get them to that yeah. that uh, torture sequence to show his result. But we could have got there just on his behavior anyway. So yes. that's probably about 15 minutes, 10 minutes that could have come off the top and made this a little bit tighter. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it gave that uh, really tall black actor... More screen time. And I like him. He's got good yeah. charisma too. And he's fun. You know, that's the problem with this movie for me. It's like, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I agree. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's fine. I, I think that there's a reason why it's probably not looked back at again as a no, dirty dancing no. or a pretty woman in the same way anymore. It's like, go to theater, watch this. Outside no. that last scene and some other individual moments, I just feel this is a little bit too, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I, I do want to say two last things here before we do some backstory. One negative, one positive. So the negative is this. Um, I wish I would have compiled the list, but at this point, doesn't like the abortion storyline feel almost like uh, tropey now too? Because yeah. it's like the fifth thing that fifth movie we watched this year that's like there has to be an abortion. Kyle, can subplot. you imagine? Is this weird? Next year and for the next five years, how much more we're gonna get now that the U.S. is up True. repealing all of their or debating all of their abortion uh, rhetoric? Mm-hmm. It's gonna become uh, even more boilerplate. You know, it's a big issue. You were expecting the AIDS epidemic to play a bigger role, but that's probably next year, right? Or 84, because it takes some time to get into the consciousness. Well, I was wondering if it would make it in, because 82 in the news would have been a big deal in 1982. But the writers are now I think you're right. I think 83, 84 is when you're probably going to start to see a lot of that trickle into the filmmaking. Yeah. Is abortion rights something that was trending towards the end of the 70s? I I just think that women's movements coming out of the 60s, 70s are starting to creep in because women are being allowed to write scripts around this era and or to contribute to them. And we're getting stronger female actresses who are demanding a little bit more control over their characters. And of course, it hasn't been strong enough until maybe five years ago that we're getting proper supported female filmmakers. I mean, there have been good iconic filmmakers over the last 40 years, but they're like one out of every 60. I don't know. And they don't get to make a movie a year. Yeah, they can't be as prolific. No. And it's not for a lack of talent. So I, uh, I do notice it. Just like we notice the no drugs, uh, the, anybody with a moral quandary is going to be portrayed as evil or suffer the, you know, they're, mm-hmm. it's American filmmaking. Just say no, Jay, just <laughs> say no. The one thing this does, this is low key, one of my favorite things that movies do, which is that they wait a while for the opening credits to come on. Mm. So I, I, I looked at the, the time, it is nine minutes before the title card shows up. And it's like Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, an officer and a gentleman. My favorite in recent years, I will say, is Drive My Car, the Japanese film, it, yeah. which is it's a full hour before the opening credits come oh, on. Wow. And I just think it's so brilliant when a movie is like, we have to tell you this information. And now, boom, By now the, way, the movie is yeah. starting. By the way, this is the real story. I like that little thing that happens. Who's going to have the balls to make a movie where there's never any opening credits? I won't stand too 
strongly on the same point, but I will say I think that the process coming out of the late 90s of just having a graphic design company just paste over the opening credits over, you know, moving <laughs> yeah. images really bothers mm -hmm. me because it's not intertwined sure. with the film. So, I, yeah, I do like when the credits are incorporated into the filmmaking for sure because then they're yeah. part of the director's decision and not a third-party company hired by the producers yeah. for marketing. But I haven't seen Drive My Car and I don't know if I would just be off-put after an hour and be like, oh, shit, I forgot we were watching a movie. I was just sitting here experiencing. Wait, the movie is starting now? <laughs> oh, my God. So great. But that, how long is that movie? That director made like a five hour. Three hours. Yeah. His last movie was like a five hour movie or something, right? You have to like check off though. I will. And that's not even a joke. Like if you don't really like Anton Chekhov, it's not going to be a good time for you at the oh, movie. I thought it was a Murakami book. It is, but it talks a lot about Chekhov. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. that's like Kafka. And it's about language and all this other stuff. Anyway. Sounds like a Murakami book. Let's do some backstory about this movie. This opened up on August 13th, 1982. What were you doing then? What were you up to on August 13th, 1982? I was four. So taking mm. a shit or picking my nose or both at Great. the same time. Sounds awesome. Sounds awesome. <laughs> it is rated 3.3 on Letterboxd, 7.0 on IMDb. It has a 75 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 32 critics, it has a 78%. And from 50,000 plus users, it's at an 81%. Mm. Available on DVD and Blu-ray, uh, and is currently available to purchase or rent on both iTunes and YouTube. Dave, this budget with megastars, Richard Gere and Deborah Winger. Mm, were they megastars yet? Was made for $7 million. Wow. That is 60% less than Yes, Giorgio. Well, I mean, if you look at that motel room, I mean, they were literally at a seaside motel. <laughs> but yeah. It probably cost <laughs> them like- Can we rent this for a couple yeah, hours? Yeah, it probably cost yeah, them like fine. 30 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we only rent by the hour. It would go on- to make $190 million. Amazing. That would be adjusted for inflation, $586 million if it was uh, coming out today. It was the third highest grossing film of 1982. Its plot description from IMDb is, a young man must complete his work at a Navy officer candidate school to become an aviator with the help of a tough gunnery sergeant and his new girlfriend. Dave, it is now time to play everyone's favorite game. Guess, Guess that, that, that tag. Guess that tag is, of course, the game show that we play each and every week on this show where I get to impersonate Bob Barker. I have his long microphone. I put on this handsome blazer. And Dave must guess what the tagline to this movie was. Dave, when you go to the movie theaters, of course, you know, you see that long line of posters. And perhaps you have, you have waited 13 years and you are finally entering in to the auditorium of aural delights and visual treats Why 13 to watch okay, yeah. Avatar The Way of Water. Oh, okay. okay. I was like, 13, where are we going with this? But you went with Avatar. They brought it back to Disney yeah. Plus, so I really should watch the original one. But I don't want to. Yeah, I am so, so excited. You're so into it. It's so, so gross. I mean, the first like one is salivated. not great. I'm not, I'm not saying that the first <laughs> one is see, great. If you don't hear it, Kyle's sweating right now with anticipation. I've actually turned blue like a Navi. <laughs> I'm not saying the first Avatar is like amazing, but it's good. I think it's a solid film. And I am so excited for the second one. James Cameron is such an asshole that I've loved every single interview he has done. Did you read? Have you seen anything that's going around? I'm not following it. To just do a side tangent for just a second, he has now given me perhaps my new favorite quote. He did this piece, I think it was for Variety. I'm probably getting that wrong, but he did this sit down long form interview with this publication. And uh, the interviewer asked him, so this movie is really expensive. 
how expensive is it? And James Cameron's response was, very fucking. <laughs> I think it's so succinct and great that that is how he, how he answered it. Is this what you call uh, standing? Never change, James Cameron. <laughs> never change. <laughs> I, you know what? I mean, as eccentric and interesting as he's become, he's made some of the most iconic films for me growing up. Yeah. I was watching, Emerson and I were playing this game called It Takes Two. You want to watch, uh, you want to play a video game about a video People game divorcing. writer with a shitty relationship history. Play It Takes Two because it's about the most awful parents getting divorced. But there's one scene where one of the bad guys falls into a pit of lava and does the uh, thumbs and up. And the thumbs up. And uh, I was like, oh, it's Terminator 2. And my son, because he's eight, was like, what's that? And I'm like, oh, we got some homework to do once you're old enough. Mm. Because we got to watch a lot of James Cameron films. You watched that when you were eight years old. Uh, Terminator 2 was my first theater movie where I snuck into a theater. I watched it when I was 13. Mm. To see that movie as your first sort of on your own film. Yeah. That's why I like movies, I think. Because that's, that's a good Breaks one. Breaks your brain. <laughs> so, anyways, back to this. Dave, is the tagline to... And, you know, there's that little text that happens on the poster. Oh, yeah. Wow, it's right. big tangent. Right. So, Sorry. Yeah. It's your fault. You brought so, up Avatar. Yeah, I know. And I'm calling the cops on Dave for just admitting his crime of trespassing. So, here are your three options for this movie, Dave. What is the tagline to this movie? Life gave him nothing except the courage to win and a woman to love. Is it, love lifts us up where we belong? Or is it three, he's waging a battle between pride and love? I guess one. Life gives him, sorry, life gave him nothing except the courage to win and a woman to love? Yeah. How dare you? What? Yeah, you got it right. It's the only one that sounds like actual copy. No offense this week. <laughs> What? The second one's the, the, second the title because that song wouldn't have come out yet. Along. No, That's, the second one. The, it would have come out by no, now. No, but the third one, I don't know. That's okay. It's the end of the year. You're probably just getting exhausted. This stars Richard Gere. Dave, if you want to go to a screenwriting school. Also, can I just make a the, point? That's actually one of the only taglines this year that actually fits the film. It's like, it's not even a bad tagline. Yeah. It's actually pretty decent. Yeah. Anyways, okay. <laughs> Dave, if you want to go to screenwriting school, take a look at the character names that were given to the people in this movie. So this stars Richard Gere as Zach Mayo, <laughs> Deborah Winger as Paula Pufrifke, <laughs> Louis Gossett Jr. as Sergeant Emil Foley. And David Keith as Sid Worley. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are great names. These are perfect names. <laughs> Very American. That guy in Ocean's Eleven is Scott Mayo, right? Uh, I think you're thinking of Scott Bayo. Scott Bayo is the Hawaii Five-O guy. <laughs> no, he's Charles in Charge. Charles in Charge, sorry. From yeah, yeah, yeah. Happy Days. I think you're thinking of Scott Kahn. Scott Kahn. Which one? James Kahn has a son? He does. And he shows up in all three Ocean's Eleven oh, movies. <laughs> maybe I am thinking of that guy. Short guy? He does look exactly like a young James Kahn. Oh, then. <laughs> Except beefier. Oh, okay. He's, yeah, maybe I'm thinking of that guy. I don't know why I thought his last name was Mayo. <laughs> Anything we want to say about any of these actors, though? Uh, Richard Gere we talked about, I yeah, found out that we talked about. he was like a competitive gymnast, which explains- Oh, really? Yeah, like when he's doing that obstacle course, it, you know, he's actually mm -hmm. doing it. And I was like- You can see him actually doing it, so And the other yeah, thing, as impressive. I've been learning as we watch so many movies, I keep forgetting that actors are like models, like they're very physically uh, fit because you have to also look right. good on TV. Some of the shit he's doing in this film, he's like, oh, give me 50 push-ups. You're like, I don't think I could do 50 push-ups, but here's Richard Gere just like- Boom, 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 boom. Um, yeah. So he's fun. I, I just told you about Deborah Winger was paralyzed, which I thought was quite a shocking revelation. Louis Gossett Jr. apparently was known for folk singing before he became an actor. Hmm, I did not know that. Yeah, those are kind of little morsels that I found on the internet. Cinematography was done by Donald E. Thorin. Mm-hmm. 
His top four on IMDb are Midnight Run from 1988, The Golden Child from 1986, Lock Up from 1989, and talking about James Caan, Thief from 1981. Michael Mann's Thief. That's a good movie, Mm -hmm. man. Written by Douglas Day Stewart and directed by Taylor Hackford. Do you want to know my WTF moment this week, Dave? Sure. Do you know who Taylor Hackford's wife is? No. Helen Mirren. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) No idea. Literally, since 1997, so it wouldn't have been at this time, but since 1997, Helen Mirren and Taylor Hackford have been married. I'm like, what the fuck? I had no idea uh, that was true. Does Taylor Hackford have other movies that I'd be surprised that he made? Um, he is one of those directors that is like, not necessarily for hire, but he does, he's not a auteur okay. in the way that we think of as like a Scorsese or Spielberg or something like that. Ray is probably the big one people like, are going to uh, know. Jamie, Jamie Foxx. The Ray, Ray? Charles biopic. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The other one, Devil's Advocate. That's oh, That's another wow. one that you might've seen. Okay. Right? Parker, if you've seen that one. With, uh, with Jason his face, Statham. Uh, Jason Statham. Is Parker the one with J-Lo in it too? Yes. Mm, that's not a good movie. Dolores Claiborne, if that was like a, an awards contender. Wow. That's probably the big ones. Apparently he has two other movies on the go, so right? Like they're going to come out. Like he's, he can direct a film. It's one of those people who's like, we need a competent director. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite adjective to be called, competent. The other thing I was thinking about though, doesn't this movie feel like it's based on something, like a book, an yeah. article, a short story or something yeah. like it's that? It's not. That I know. It's not, yeah. yeah. I, I really just sort of like, maybe they're just not crediting them or it's like, no. anyways, I cannot find anywhere that this is actually based on I think it's the anything. tropiness of it. There's so many familiar pieces. It sounds like it ought to have been a novel. I agree. Douglas Day Stewart was an established screenwriter at this point, mostly having written for television shows and TV movies. The big film he wrote for TV was The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Oh, yeah. Which starred John Travolta G- G- and- uh, Jake Gyllenhaal? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Bubble Boy Day. That's a remake of the of the John Travolta film, isn't it? No, it is not. Oh, it's no, not. It's a completely different thing. Oh, it's I a didn't completely know that. different thing. I, I think I have seen the Travolta. I mean, maybe they have the same source, like meaning yeah. like they're going from the same initial source, but no. The thing you're thinking of, Dave, is the Seinfeld episode where they basically parody oh. The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Have I, I think I've actually seen it. Uh, John Travolta's like 15 or something in it. Yeah, yeah. he's pretty young in that yeah. one. He's going to come up in just like five more seconds, by the way, John Travolta. But we'll come back to that. Scientology. He's going to take his face off. Uh, Douglas Day Stewart, in 1980, he'd written the script for the film The Blue Lagoon. Oh, wow. Terrible movie, by the way. But well, uh, you he see did write Brooke that. Shields' fake boobs from uh, Standin, allegedly. Uh-huh. Cause she was you get to too see young. the penis of the other uh, young guy. It's not his actual penis. Who's the guy? Did he make it? I don't know. He was only in there like two other yeah, things in his entire life. So should have shown his real penis. Yeah, at 13, I'm sure that would have been really great. Uh, and from what I can tell, after this movie, he really never wrote anything oh. that had any cultural impact. Interesting. That, like, he did write other stuff. Oh, he okay, directed okay. a couple of things. I have no name recognition of anything that he wrote after this. This movie is definitely what elevated Taylor Hackford's career. In the lead up, he had actually already won an Academy Award in 1978 for a short film called Teenage Father. Hmm. He also made a documentary about Bukowski. Uh, and in 1980, he directed The Idol Maker, which did receive some recognition for the lead performances and the music. Taylor Hackford wanted John Travolta to star in this movie. Hmm. But uh, Travolta turned it down. This is one of those weird uh, Hollywood things, kind of coincidences, that this is the second time that Richard Gere stars in a movie 
that was originally offered to John Travolta, mm-hmm. and John Travolta turns it down. So this movie and American Gigolo, both movies were first offered to John Travolta, and he turned them down. We talked about how Arlie Ermey was cast to be the drill instructor. Gear has two moments where he disagreed with what the script wanted to do. One was his fight with Louis Gossett Jr. He thought that he should win that fight outright. Uh, and Hackford said, no, no, that doesn't not. make sense. That doesn't make sense, yeah. <laughs> And actually, he got really frustrated, so he kicked Louis Gossett Jr. for real in the abdomen. Like, he he struck him, which made Gossett walk off the set for two days, and he didn't return. And in that case, what they needed to do is they needed to find a stunt double for Louis Gossett Jr. To kick him in the balls for real? Well, yeah, basically. So, any of the shots where you see behind Louis Gossett Jr., that is a stunt double. The second scene that Gear had to, had an issue with was at the very end. He thought that it was a bit too corny for him to come in, yes, take up Deborah Winger and walk out. I agree. But once he saw the very beginning of the shot, they had him do the very beginning as his walk-in, paired with the music. Uh, he said he changed his mind because he understood what the film was trying to do. Mm-hmm. As stated, this made a lot of money. It was a huge hit. A third highest grossing movie of the year. It was well-liked. Considered by many critics to be the best of the year, it would be nominated for six Academy Awards. Such a weird it would thing win. that this yeah have the we've watched so many good movies this year. Oh, it is weird. Like this is I'm even trying to think of like would a movie I, I guess take out like what we think of the movie, but would like a straight up romance like this even be con- in the running <laughs> for six Academy Awards now? I, I just have a hard time thinking that that would be the case. Yeah. I've become a lot more jaded than people were in in Mm -hmm. early 80s America. That's like the boom time of idealism, idealism. But third, third highest grossing six Academy Award nominations. It's not going to agree with my score. It would win two of them. One was for Louis Gossett Jr. for Best Supporting Actor. The other was, I think, the more egregious win, which is for Best Original Song. Really? Up Where You Belong. Won an well, Oscar? I think Eye of the Tiger should have won. No, I just surprised the song won. It's so corny. Won. Okay. I think it's about time to have a hefty diet of corn in our movie diets. It does do my fa- one of my favorite things that the 80s used to do. This is also something that never happens anymore, which is a song that is directly written for a movie and then the score yeah. basically emulates that throughout yeah, the, yeah. the movie so that when you finally hear that song, it's like hear the, the big we have- resolve of everything that's been building up to. There's a movie this year that did that. It wasn't Tootsie. Was there? Oh, it's the one scored by Burt Baccarat. You mean in 1982 this yeah. year? Oh, I thought you meant in like 2022. No, 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 no. Uh, we watched a movie where it was like a Burt Baccarat. You're right. Song. It was uh, in the late shift. Yes. Night shift. Night shift. Night shift. You're and right. that song was yeah, yeah, yeah. just constantly on repeat. the song though that was in there? It was like a really popular song. And now I can't remember oh, what it was. Know. Anyways. Uh, one thing I matter. forgot to mention, uh, Richard Gears created music. And he wrote the score. To, is it Pretty Woman? He wrote the score too? Oh, I don't know that. I don't know. I'll look it up while you continue and I'll... No, we're done. That was uh, <laughs> it's just the whole backstory. There's not much written about this movie. I was actually kind of shocked. Oh, There's not a lot not written good. about it. Um, no. Other than, like I just said, like Richard Gere is a bit of a jerk in some, in some cases. There's a few things I wrote down here in my notes. I just want to kind of check off here. Number one, I do sympathize with that uh, female cadet because I could never do the ropes e- either. No. Like never once have I ever been able to use the ropes and pull myself up did i straight wall. have i, I talked about have no upper body strength have i talked about uh, doing the spartan race with my brother no so many years ago my brother thought it'd be a great idea when he lived in california that we sign up for not a regular spartan race out of the blue but it was called uh, whatever their top it's 18 miles on a fucking mountain and he's like we're just going to do this one and i i didn't exercise and so when <laughs> i got there um 
I was. I just, I just envisioned you literally walking onto the course eating a donut. I'm like, pretty much. This is the, like this I, the course. I, you know, the condo is a gym. So I tried to go to the gym, but I had no idea what I was doing. So we got there and every obstacle that required upper body strength, he had to pick me up and push me over. Jesus. And all the ones lower body strength, because I used to, you know, play sports and stuff. Like they're fine. Mm. Like, you know, this, that, and the other thing. But yeah, it was quite a humbling because they have uh, the rope climb. I'm like, I can't do it. They have a wall climb. You have to jump up at the first mile after you go on this incline. I was like, I can't. I can hardly grab the top of this wood wall. It was embarrassing. So, yeah, I feel that gross pain. It's uh, Or woman's pain. It's. Uh, I think you needed someone to come and yell in your face <laughs> saying that you could do it. And then you'd be able to do it. Yeah. You just, what, what did it say? Just walk up the wall. Left, right, or whatever he was saying. In a way, like his encouragement, like again, the scene worked for me, but really when you when you really think about it, like, what? I don't know if that would actually help me. Oh, <laughs> you mean I just walk up the wall? Oh, I've been doing this wrong the entire time. It's like someone who's like me in like the pit of a depression and, and someone like, why don't you just be happy? Oh, <laughs> thank you. I should have just tried that. <laughs> um, so Richard Gere composed and performed the Pretty Woman piano theme. Oh, interesting. Yeah, That's yeah. fun. I forgot about that. I was going to bring that up earlier, but I brought it up now. So points for me. By the way, that uh, little kick that happens at the very beginning, that guy who, who beats him up as a kid. Yeah. Um, is that Hapkido or is that another? <laughs> <laughs> they keep referencing karate. So maybe it's karate, but. Uh, karate. But uh, yeah, what a mess. I'll also say the other test that is basically one of my many nightmares is them pushing them into that contraption oh, so yeah, they're yeah. upside down underwater. I'm like, no, thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. Or, you know, and I, I do like, again, maybe this is what makes the film a little belabor, trying to focus so much on how difficult it is to be a military pilot. So they do all the tests, oxygen deprivation test and the drowning test and all that kind of stuff. It is interesting. As soon as you said the writer did telefilms, you know, that's, I think, what makes this drag on a little bit. I think bit. you can tell. It feels yeah. a little bit like a TV movie, doesn't it? Honestly, I think having had this conversation, some small tweaks here and there, and I bet you anything, this would have become one of my favorite movies of all time. It's possible. Uh, yeah. Without doing much changes. Because the other thing that I'm thinking of is what's the, the actor's name? David Keith, who is who plays Sid. I think that storyline is actually quite good. pretty raw yeah. and like upsetting. Yeah. But for me, also kind of came out of nowhere because yeah. he's just kind of like this very supporting like friend at the base, but we're really focused on this relationship. And Richard Gere's relationship with the drill instructor, that when it goes into that tangent of him quitting and yeah. eating the ring and then and killing himself, I was like, what the fuck? I was not anticipating this movie to go so in this direction well, that's, whatsoever. That's the weird, I think that's the weird thing about feeling like it's muddled yeah. and several films cobbled and together. And feeling like it's based on something because it's like, oh, well, they obviously added this in because it's part of the book or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if you take that scene and compare it to the opening scene, those are of a single tone. Sure. But the middle part where they're uh, flirting around in total 80s sense, or even a 60s sense, like making out in the back of a car and going on the beach to have sex. We saw that in 71, you know, with a se mm -hmm. several sort of romantic films. So there's a feeling like that's very old fashioned. And then I love, actually really love the twist that he, he finds himself and he goes to uh, propose to this woman and she turns him down because he's not yeah. cool anymore. Uh, and you're like, whoa, fuck, I wasn't expecting that because I was kind of cheering yeah. him on. I'm like, you did it. You figured out what you really want. And she's like, fuck you, you're a loser. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, what the <laughs> no, hell just like, happened? The, um, yeah. So you know that he's probably going to kill himself, but I don't know, like, yeah, 
even this, I think you could re hopefully rework the scene where he meets his dad. I, I think there's a missed opportunity there to understand how much pressure he's in. And yeah, they yeah. throw that whole subplot of him having a, not a wife, what do you call it? A fiance who was his mm. dead brother's ex girl. Like it's just a mess. Yeah. It's just so kind of throw like 15 things at you to get to this big punch, gut punch. But I mean, in many ways, what it feels like these are very different movies, but they shared this one thing in common. Have you watched Wendell and Wild on Netflix at oh, all? Oh, not yet. Uh, another My List movie, but I found out yeah, it's so, not for kids, so I can't watch it with Emerson. Well, I mean- Isn't that PG-13? Is, is Nightmare Before Christmas made for kids? I mean, that's basically what it is. Well, he couldn't watch that until like this Christmas. He got I'm too scared. It, yeah. It's Henry Selleck who did that and who did Coraline, who does, he's weird and yes, can be upsetting for small kids. But what my feeling was, I am a huge Henry Selleck fan. Like, I really love a lot of his stop motion stuff. But what it felt like, he also has taken a 13-year break between the last movie he did and this new movie coming out. And Wendell on Wild for me felt like, well, I've had these, like, five different ideas that mm -hmm. I've wanted to do. So I'm just going to stuff them into this one movie. And it's like, whoa, like, geez, like, what is happening? You're trying to do, like, one of these is a cool idea, but, like, not paired with these four other things yeah. that are just wildly going in different directions. I feel the same way for this movie, which is like, Individually, there's some really interesting stuff and some bold things and Good great acting, performances yes. and the sex chemistry is like off the charts. Like it's all great. But as a whole, I'm just like, I don't know if this all works together. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's like a discord. It's, you know, they have mm -hmm. these great waves, but they conflict with each other in certain parts. And then you're left with this chaos because <laughs> you're like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I, 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 five minutes ago, I was like cheering somebody on and now I'm like, I, somebody just died. Like, I don't understand what's going <laughs> yeah, on. Just... And now they're graduating. I'm like, he's picking a girl up in a fucking factory. I'm like, I, I give up. Like, I can't. I just couldn't do I mean, it. it's like, yeah. I know, because like, there's that really weird scene. The guy, uh, David Keith comes and says like, I'm quitting. I was like, no, you're not. I'm quitting. And then there, because he can't be there for uh, gear and the drill sergeant to talk, just a books it he just like runs at full speed away i'm like that's how we're writing this guy out of the movie like this is so weird yeah. and then they have to have like this like 30 45 second scene between the drill instructor and gear and then finally gear runs away i'm like i feel there's a more elegant way yes. they could have figured this out yeah, yeah having the march out of the bill i don't know there's just little things like that and again i don't know if we're tainted by recency bias and we've seen more tightly structured versions of these altercations i have no idea but i would suspect i'd be wrong apparently because how highly rated this thing was but i'd like to think a 1982 audience would also be like why the fuck did that guy just start running away into the middle of a street like it's just it's yeah. so random right um but who knows uh, apparently people love this movie I do like that we kind of see the corrupting underbelly of this town. It's like watching First Blood. There's something nice about, not nice, but uh, earnest about when we finally see that blonde woman's house. I thought that, oh, this is the one thing I wanted to bring up. Like, even with that, I was expecting her to be living with her parents. I got the mm. feeling that they cast 30-year-olds to play teenagers because he's talking about graduating high school. And I feel like if this was remade, this would be quite more powerful if we had it set up as people like in their late teens or their early 20s. But as it's portrayed, I got very confused about, is this the age where these people are having these very melodramatic crises? And I know Richard Gere's not that old yet. And I know that there was a requirement maybe to cast and people kind of just look older in this era. So you're not going to be able to find a 19-year-old actor, like 
good group of 19-year-old actors yeah. to perform for this. But, you know, when these like crucial scenes, like when they go to eat dinner at Deborah Winger's house, like it just felt, I just couldn't understand. I thought the sister was her for a second when she appears and she's right. like doe-eyeing him. And I'm like, she looks different. When did she get a haircut? <laughs> So, I, just like yeah, little things, I don't know. Richard Gere would have been 33 yeah. when but the this movie came out. So, probably 32 when he was making and it. I but think like, the character's supposed to be like 21 or 22. Or yeah, like I know. He's supposed to be early 20s at the at the oldest, so, probably. So I just feel like there's... Well, no, he's, he's graduating. So, he has to be like 18, supposed 19. supposed to be 18. But, you know, considering his background, if we were saying yeah. that he's a late bloomer because, you know, he's had this trouble life, you could say he's 20 or 21. Maybe. And then it would make sense that these girls are like young, but they're also tied in so well with the culture of the Naval Academy, like all the generals' yeah. wives know them. So that, that those little details kind of bring me in, bring me out, you know, uh, nothing against the actor. I think all the yeah. actors do well. I think Gear had the weirdest moment when he does his emo emotional outburst. I, I was kind of gave a chuckle to myself. But aside from that, I thought it was well, really well structured. Uh, I just wish yeah. I'd liked it more. Yeah, I mean, if it was made today, it would be a 10-part miniseries, so yeah. that's what and happened. We would have got uh, season one just when he got to the Naval mm. Academy. <laughs> and a that's lot right. more sex. We're done here. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up, so let's move on into Critics' Choice. This is the part of the show where we talk about what the critics were saying at the time this movie came out. Roger Ebert was definitely on the side of people who loved this movie. He gave this a perfect score, four out of four stars. He wrote, in part, this is how he closed his review, this is a wonderful movie, precisely because it's so willing to deal with matters of the heart. Love stories are among the rarest of movies these days, and when we finally get one, it's likely to involve an extraterrestrial. What? Maybe they're rare because writers and filmmakers no longer believe they understand what goes on between modern men and modern women. An officer and a gentleman takes chances, takes the time to know and develop its characters, and by the time this movie's wonderful last scene comes along, we know exactly what's happening and why. And it makes us very happy. I don't know what the extraterrestrial comment yeah. is about, to be brutally honest. Someone have sex he, with he e. liked E.T. Yeah. So, like, I mean, that's, he's not talking about E.T., <laughs> so I don't know. I don't get it. Right in, if you understand. Pauline Kale was pretty mixed on this movie. She wrote so much. Like, it's a long, long a article yeah. she wrote about this movie. The, the long and short of it is that she felt that uh, it, it was uh, totally inconsistent, something that we actually even talked about. But this is how she essentially wraps up her review. Uh, but it's Deborah Winger who holds the picture together. She makes you feel that there's something burning inside her. And she looks different in every shot, which, help, which helps to keep your mind off the fact that her character doesn't develop. The only time I cringed for her was in the poorly staged scene with Zack telling off a callous, cold-blooded girlfriend of hers and Paula rounding on the no-good-nick girl with a pitying, God help you. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Hackford has enough howling effrontery to put over the big romantic number. When Zack, having recognized Paula's true qualities, arrives at the mill, dressed in his officer's white uniform, walks through the grime until he finds her, and then carries her out as the other employees misty-eyed applaud, Norma Ray prepared us, workers applaud in mills all the time. A movie like this, in which no one is like anyone you know and everything is made up, can make you feel imaginary too. As we always talk about, we're doing our best to try to become writers, and it is hard. It is hard to develop a human character within the context of a single narrative, for right. sure. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to reflect on why some films are so good at it and others have trouble in this one, like Richard Gere obviously is fully fleshed out and yeah, Deborah Winger's performance is good, but I think it's a very good observation that we don't actually, she doesn't change from point A to point B, No, right? 
it's just more yeah, this is all for him yeah i mean of, of course it is called an officer and a gentleman so i mean it is really focused on should him. have been called officer and a gentle woman you see dave he starts off as an officer uh-huh. and he ends as no, a gentleman no he didn't start off as an officer <laughs> he becomes an officer beca- before he becomes a gentleman uh, apparently that is a phrase used in the military by the way oh, i don't know we ask this question each and every week does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant what do you say I don't want to go too far in cultural relevance in the sense that, at least for the 90s, people quoted it. I, I think for me, it's kind of a no and no. I didn't hate watching this movie, but I do feel like it falls into a very 80s pocket. And personally, I didn't really buy into a lot of the like the conclusion and some of the pieces in between. And I don't think anybody mm-hmm. younger than 40 gives a shit that this <laughs> thing exists anymore. I mean, I could be wrong. Other than film students, uh, I don't know if uh, people care. Even the romantic scene in the back, people are more apt to kiss upside down because of Spider-Man than they are to wait for a guy in a naval uniform to pick them up and carry them out of a paper factory. Those jobs don't exist anymore either. Yeah, thanks automation. <laughs> so the I think I'm I'm I think I'm going to agree with you. Like I don't think it holds up in the sense that I don't think it's a terrible movie, but I don't think. Yeah, I don't know if this aligns with like m- what modern audiences are wanting to watch. I mean, like I said, I've named other 80s and early 90s films that I think are do hold up more and that people do rewatch constantly. It feels like this movie lacks a little bit of visual energy. Like, uh, sure. Yeah. And uh, is it culturally relevant? I mean, the song is something that plays do people still like, listen in the, to the background song? when I'm getting my teeth cleaned. <laughs> but I mean, I don't know if like... I, you know, the I was like uh, when my eye phone, I almost said iPod, iPhone fails to connect with the Bluetooth, the car will put on the radio. And like Mm -hmm. the radio music is not elevator music anymore. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's still Nicki Minaj, but maybe a radio version of it. So would Up Where We Belong be playing anywhere in the world anymore? I I, I really hope I walk into an elevator sometime this week and say, (laughs) (laughs) I like that you both think that people still listen to music on the radio. We do need to rate this film, but before we do, that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also do release videos on our YouTube channel. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie, Dave, out of five. What are you going to give an officer and a gentleman? I, I think I'm going to give it a three. I I didn't hate watching this movie. So I think mm. three is apt. I feel like, yeah, there's enough in it that... Um, you know, I got through the two hours and five minutes of its runtime. I have some strong critiques and that's kind of where I end up. Well, it's been a while since I think this has happened. I am also giving it a three. Mm. I'm kind of right there with you. I'm just like, it's not terrible. I had a, it was fine watching it, but do I love this movie? No, (laughs) I probably would not return to this by my own accord, but I mean, I don't know if someone was watching this on a couch and I was sitting there like, all right, I guess you we're watching just an officer and a gentleman. You wouldn't just run off into the street? <laughs> just like, book it. <laughs> Running like Robert Patrick from The Terminator. <laughs> just like. Uh, Terminator 2. That is going to tie with a bunch of movies. So starting at the bottom, 
Do you think this is better or worse than the Dark Crystal? Not better. Do you think this is better or worse than Halloween 3? Better. Do you think this is better or worse than Fast Times at Ridgemont High? I think better. I know you don't, but... is this? Do you think this is better or worse than Tron? Yeah, it's a tough one. All right, what's after Tron? Or is Tron the last one? Conan the Barbarian. I, I would put Conan above this. Okay. So then we're in that area. Where do you, do you think Tron is better? Oh, no, I would put it above Tron. I feel like Tron's... Okay. Tron was a weird one for us. I think we wanted to like it more than we did. <laughs> well, I do. I actually like Tron quite a bit, but I think I would rate this... My score won't re- replicate no. this, but I think just on a pure rewatchability test, I would say that Officer and Gentleman is probably more rewatchable than Tron is. No. I don't know if that's a bold thing to say. I would, I would just say I probably wouldn't rewatch either of them, but surprisingly, sure. I have no interest in rewatching Tron 1. Yeah, let's put up other. It has more clout and made more money. And your favorite yeah. person in the world loved it, gave it four stars, so... You got to give uh, Ebert his due there too. That entering our list at the new number 21 position is an officer and a gentleman right below Conan the Barbarian, right above Tron. So it does also mean that I guess we should find out what we are watching next week. I'm just going to push this button here. Oh, you know, this movie has been on my watch list for so many years. Uh, it's a musical. It stars Dolly Parton. It's the best little whorehouse in Texas, Dave. Mm. <laughs> Good. Holy shit. The, 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 the waves of not giving a shit just like <laughs> emanated through the computer screen and then like choked me. Ah, it's uh, yeah, it's a movie. Are you honestly, this will make us fight for real. Are you about to tell me that you don't like Dolly Parton? Uh, no, I just never heard of this movie before. So, oh, okay. Yeah. It's super campy. Like it is <laughs> maybe one of the most campiest things in the world. So just be aware oh, of that we'll huge see. wigs, huge personalities. All right, all right. What better time than at Christmas to watch the best little whorehouse in Texas? Oh boy. Gosh, we're still flinging around this huge void. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Wormhole. Wait, uh, uh-huh. What's... What, what's that up ahead? Is, do you see that little small pinprick? <laughs> I'm not talking about myself, I'm, try, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, there. I'm trying to the be mature prick. about it, but it's not working. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's probably a light, but can there be a light in a black hole? I guess I'll have to find out. Did you know there's a white hole? <laughs> yes, I'm on Grinder, Dave. <laughs> I always crave more butts.